Well, when parents tell their kids what to do or why they're about to do something or what you're about to do as a family, what do kids, kids, and when you were a kid, what do kids always say? Okay, on the count of three, all right, we're gonna say it. Okay, what do kids always say when their parents tell them what to do or where we're going? Okay, ready? One, two, three, what do kids say? Why, right. And then what kids, or if you were a kid at one point, okay, most of us were kids at one point, right? Okay, when, when your kids say why, or when a kid say why, on the count of three, what do parents say? One, two, three. Perfect, exactly what I thought. Your family's like mine, just like mine growing up, just like mine today. But have you ever, parents, parents, have you ever walked away from your kids saying why? Now, you could never admit this, all right? You never would admit it. You never could admit it. But have you ever walked away thinking, you know, that's a good question. Why? I mean, now some of you I know, and if you're like me, you're like, no, I've never thought that. You know, uh, I've never really thought that. Like I'm usually like got something else on my mind or I'm I'm frustrated or there's a lot of other things going on or they've asked me why, you know, 10,000 times in a row. So I'm not really thinking it's that good of a question. But sometimes, sometimes I think if we're honest, our kids ask why. And we say, because I said so, because we think, hey, you know, that's a pretty good question right now. And I'm I'm not too sure what the why really is, except that I said so. And so I'm going to do it because I said so. And you're going to do it because I said so. I don't really know why, but that's a good question to ask. Why? Why are we going to do this? Why do we not do these things? And why do we do the things that we do? And to, to see the why like the why behind the what. It takes seeing beyond or through the immediate, like what's right in front of you. It takes seeing beyond or through the surface level. And when it comes to spiritual things, that takes spiritual vision. It takes spiritual eyes, spiritual vision to see the why behind the what. Like why we do certain things as followers of Jesus and why we don't do other things. It takes seeing seeing the, the why. And that's true with our mission as followers of Jesus, like to know the real mission behind parenting, behind work, behind even suffering as a family and going through hard and difficult times. Like it takes spiritual eyes to see the mission that God has for us in each one of those circumstances. We're gonna look at those today here in Colossians chapter three and chapter four. So if you got your Bible, you can turn there. We're gonna be talking about keeping our vision on the mission. When it comes to parenting, when it comes to our jobs, when it comes to even suffering, we've got to keep our vision on the mission. So we're in a series where we're going verse by verse through the book of Colossians. And so we've invited you to join us in this uh, study of Colossians in our city groups, our small group Bible studies, okay? A lot of those have been off for the summer, but those are gonna be ramping up as we get back into uh, the, the fall. But we're inviting you to participate in these book studies verse by verse in our city groups and then on our app through our daily devotionals. So this week we'll break down these verses again and we'll talk about them and give you some more commentary, give you some application points and give you some prayer points in our daily devotionals. So we're inviting you to study the book of Colossians, not just in here, but with us as a church family all throughout the week. And here's what we said the theme of Colossians is. Christ supreme is the theme. Okay, we've had a couple of weeks off. All right, so get out your app, start taking some notes in our message notes, select message notes, and then here's where you fill in the blank. And if you're new, this is a great way to follow along and just stay engaged in our time together. We've got a lot to cover today. Okay, and I know you're kind of like, listen, Clayton, that's every week with you. I get it. I get it, okay? We're not a microwave church. We're kind of a, a slow burn, you know, kind of smoking the ribs kind of, kind of, or brisket kind of church. Okay, so, so we got a lot to cover today, but this is where you, where you fill in the blank, okay? Christ supreme is the theme of the book of Colossians. And what we mean by that is that Christ being supreme changes everything. It should change everything in the life of the Christian. He becomes supreme in my life, and so that changes everything. Christ supreme means he is worthy. He's worthy of my time, my money, my sacrifice, my devotion, my, my worship. Christ being supreme means he is all-sufficient. He is the living water. He's the bread of life. And if I drink from him, I'll never thirst again. And if I eat from him, the bread of life, I'll never be hungry again. He is sufficient to meet that desire, that longing in your soul that you were created for. 
You were created for a relationship with Jesus and Jesus alone satisfied that. When we say Christ is supreme, we're saying Jesus is God's will for your life. A lot of people wonder, especially as you grow up, what, what's God's will for my life? Is it this school or that person or this job? The, the scripture teaches us that Jesus is God's will for your life. It's a relationship with Jesus. That is God's will for your life. All these other things are secondary issues that fall in line as I live out what I was designed to live in, as I live in the way that I was designed to live, which is in relationship with Jesus. So Christ supreme. So here's where we've been in Colossians. We've talked about the identity of Christ, our identity in Christ, how growth in Christ happens in a spiritual family, in a community of faith. That's, that's the church that we grow in Christ with a gospel-centered church. We've, we've talked about that. And now we're, we're talking about how Christ is supreme in a flourishing family. Christ is supreme in a flourishing family. And so last week we said this, that in a flourishing family, or two weeks ago rather, that in a flourishing family, you've got a gospel-centered marriage here with a gospel-centered wife and a gospel-centered husband. That was a couple of weeks ago. And, and so we said, Jesus rose from the grave, proved that he was God. And in Matthew chapter 19, he quotes from Genesis two, and he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And so Jesus said, he made the male, and female, so, so God determines, he assigns our gender through his sovereign will. And then he says, a man will leave his father and mother and he will be united to his wife. So Jesus says marriage is between one man, uh, one man, one woman for one lifetime. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus being God, and he proved that he was God by rising from the grave, said, this is God's way. This is God's design for marriage. And so we said, if that's God's way, if that's God's design for marriage, then any other way that we come up with in culture or in this world that disagrees or doesn't look like God's way of doing things, that, that's the wrong way. It's just by definition the wrong way when you do something in a way that God didn't design it to be done. So it starts with a gospel-centered marriage. Now here's where we're going this week. Okay, here's part three. Here's number three in a flourishing family, gospel-centered parenting. Gospel-centered parenting. Now, some of you grew up in rigid homes with a lot of rules, okay? Now I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands, okay? Because kids, they'll just get you in trouble, all right? Some of you grew up in a home like that. Some of you grew up in the opposite kind of home. We call that a free range home, okay? Where you get to do anything you want. There's no rules. You get to play in the street with all the cars and no one kind of tells you anything different. There's, there's no rules. Some of you are like, well, my kids grew up in a rigid home or, or my brother and sister grew up in a rigid home, but I'm kind of growing up in a free range home. You're what we call the youngest child, okay? And your parents checked out. I'm sorry, all right? You're the youngest child. Your, your older brothers and sisters got all the rules. They got the rigid, okay? But now you're in the free range home because you are the youngest child. Some of you are single. Some of you are newly married with no kids. And you're thinking right now, I know it. Well, when I have kids, I know exactly what I'm going to do and how it's gonna go. Did you hear some of those chuckles? Okay. Lord, forgive our arrogance, all right, for being single or being newly married and thinking we know exactly how it's going to go. Some of you have one child, okay, and you're thinking, oh man, finally, I know how this works now and I know exactly what I'm going to do and how this is going to work with number two and number three. No, no, that's uh, a plus B does not equal C. one plus two does not equal three. Okay. With children. Okay. They're all different and it, it's different with each one. And so we're going to turn to what the Bible says and kind of zoom out and look at what is our mission when it comes to parenting. Now I get it. If you're here and you're like, I don't have kids. I don't ever want kids. Like, okay, that, that, that's fine. Okay. Here, here's, here's a couple of challenges for you as we talk about parenting here for just a second. Okay couple challenges for you. One is that you may not want kids now, but one day that might change. And so you need to know what the Bible teaches concerning parenting. So, so, that, so that's first. So secondly, 
if, if you're like, hey, I don't ever want kids or I can't have, or, or whatever, I don't want to adopt kids or anything like that. Okay, listen, just, 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 just bear with me for a second. This will at least give you a way to pray for parents in our church. Okay, so, so regardless of where you're at, this is for you. If you're a kid in the room, we're going to talk to you here for a second too, here in just a second. So, so don't wait. Okay. Don't worry. We're going to get to you too. Okay. But, 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 but regardless, here's what we all need to know. The Bible says about kids, regardless of your view of kids, whether you don't have kids and you see your, your family members kind of struggling with their kids and you're like, I don't ever want that. Or, or you've had kids and you're kind of frustrated right now because you were in a fight on the way to church and, and you're in the fight in the car and then you get out and then you look all, you know, kind of perfect and good and dressed up and all nice, you know, right, right. Regardless of where you're at today, the scripture teaches, and here's what we all got to realize. Here's what we all got to understand. Okay. The scripture teaches that children are a blessing from the Lord. They're a gift. They're a gift from God. And so whether you have kids, whether you foster kids, whether you've adopted kids, kids are a blessing from the Lord. And it's our role, listen, whether you have kids or not, it's our role as a church family to raise our kids here in this church to know, follow, worship, and serve Jesus. That's our, that's our mission as a church family. And so that's when we dedicate kids to the Lord here and we're saying, hey, we wanna help these families raise their kids to follow Jesus. That, that means it's on all of us. This is, this is the church family. And so we're here to raise our kids together to know, follow, worship, and serve Jesus because our kids are a blessing. They are a gift to us and we are to steward these gifts well. Now, if you're like me and you get your kids home from the hospital and you're like, wait, wait, what am I supposed to do here with this? Like, you're letting me just take this baby from the hot, like, I mean, you, to, you feel totally unprepared. You have no idea. I, I remember bringing Levi home. We're getting him in the car and I'm, we're going home and I'm like, what are we doing? They're letting us take him like to our home. What are we supposed to do with this thing? Like, I, I had no idea. Fortunately, Darby knew everything. To do. I, I had no idea. Okay, what to do, but we're going to talk about what the Bible says past the surface level. What is our mission as parents. So Colossians chapter three, starting in verse 20, it says this children always obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. There's the why. If you're a kid, we obey our parents because this pleases the Lord. Fathers do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. So let's talk about this for just a little bit. Kids, first of all, kids, if you're a child in the room, if you're still living at home, or if you're a college student and you're still living at home, okay, and your parents are, are paying all your bills and paying for, okay, listen, the, the scripture teaches you are to honor your father and mother. You're to obey your parents. Why? Because it will go well with you. It says in Ephesians 6, Paul writes, it will go well with you and you will live a long life. Here's what you've got to understand. Kids, God wants you to live a long life. He wants to bless your life. He doesn't want it to be cut off for you to be ruined or destroyed. He wants to bless your life and he wants you to live a long life. And he says, if you want to live a long life, like if you want to live past 18 years old and getting out of your parents, if you want to live beyond that, then you need to obey your parents, this pleases the Lord. And Ephesians six, Paul says, so that it may go well with you and that you may live a long life. See, God's heart and desire is for your life to be flourishing. But if you want God's best, kids, and this goes for all of us, if you want God's best, then you have to do things God's way. If you want God's best, you have to do things God's way. Think about this in the animal kingdom, okay? You're an antelope. You're a zebra, all right? And your parents are telling you, your, your mama and daddy antelope, your mama and daddy zebra are telling you, hey, we, we don't stray from the pack. We don't go uh, away or out into this area uh, at this time of day or, 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 or then. We don't, we don't do that because the lion will chase us down and devour us. Now, just, just imagine the, the, the baby or the teenage antelope or zebra is kind of like, nah, you know, or, or, ugh, you know, to their parent, right? Uh, and and they, they, they disobey their parents. What happens? 
the lion, their enemy, chases them down, eats them alive, National Geographic films it and millions of people watch it. Okay, that's what happens, okay, to the child or the teenage zebra or antelope that disobeys their parents. And that's true in the human kingdom as well. When we disobey our parents, we're opening ourselves up to be taken out by our enemy, Satan, who the scripture says prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for people to devour. And so kids, teenagers, obey your parents because this pleases the Lord and because God has given you your parents to protect you so that you might live a long and prosperous and flourishing life. Now, fathers, Paul says, fathers, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. And I think Paul here is writing, first of all, saying to fathers, number one, instead of fathers and mothers or to parents, I think number one, Paul is is writing here to fathers because he's saying, fathers, men, it is your responsibility to lead your family. We said this a couple of weeks ago. You're like a gardener and your family's your garden. And you protect them by pulling the weeds and you water them so that they might grow and flourish. And so fathers, you are responsible for the flourishing of your family. So if it's dying, you're responsible. And if it's flourishing, you're responsible. And so Paul says, fathers, don't don't aggravate your children. I think he's, again, he's addressing fathers here and he's saying, don't aggravate your children because Paul knows because of the curse of sin, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that men, dads, husbands, we drift towards passivity, punting when it comes to the relational aspect of the marriage or to disciplining our kids or to being in relationship with our kids. We punt that to our wives or we're overly aggressive. We drift towards passivity or aggression here. And so Paul is combating that and he's saying, fathers, remember, don't be passive because this is your role. You're the, you're, the, you're the one that is responsible for your family. And then because we tend towards aggression or we drift towards aggression, he says, don't aggravate your kids. Don't discourage them. So parents in general, here's what I think Paul is saying. He's saying, don't try to make them angry. He's not saying they won't become angry because of rules or because you punish them or discipline them for those rules. But I think Paul is saying, don't try to discourage them with harsh treatment or harsh words. About a month ago, I had told my kids, we had given them some chores, Levi and Coben, and so they're, they're cleaning, they're taking out the trash, they're, they're mopping the floor, they're, they're you know, cleaning the windows and the mirrors and all that kind of stuff, and cleaning the toilets, all those kinds of things. And, and I walk into the living room and my son Coben is, is mopping our wood floor and, and I walk into the living room and I can smell bleach. It reeks of bleach. And I'm like, what, what's going on? It smells like bleach. Is someone using bleach? And they're like, oh, I don't know. You know? And I said, Coben, what are you using on the floor? And he showed me what he was using. He was cleaning our wood floor with bleach. And I lost it. I'm just going to be real with you, okay? I, I'm not, okay, I, I'm just being real. I'm just being honest. Okay, I lost it. I freaked out. You know, Coben, what are you doing? Why would you do this? I, I was really upset. I was raising my voice. I was talking down to him and he started to cry. He didn't know what he was doing. And he just, he made a mistake. It wasn't sin. It wasn't disobedient. He, he just made a mistake. And I was really frustrated. And so I had to come back to him a few hours later and say, Coben, I'm sorry. I've got to apologize to you because I lost my temper. I know you didn't mean to do that. I know you weren't being, it was just a mistake. So a few hours later, after I had scrubbed the floors with wet towels and dry towels and everything else, I had to apologize to my son because I treated him with a harsh tone and with harsh Words And I think Paul here is saying, don't discourage them, fathers, parents, with harsh words. You can beat them down and discourage them with that. And so here's the, here's the flip side of that. As parents, we're to speak 
life. We're to speak life over our kids and into our kids so that they might flourish and grow and be blessed by the way that we treat them and the way that we talk to them so that we might nurture them. Ephesians 6 takes a little bit further and Paul says, bring them up with the instruction that comes from the Lord. So, so not only are we to not discourage them, but we're to speak life into them and build them up so that they might flourish in this life. Paul is saying, fathers, parents, you're to bring them up with the instruction that comes from the Lord. In other words, you're to see that they flourish not only in life, but also spiritually. That your primary role as a parent is to make disciples of your kids. Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations. And if you're a parent, that starts in your home. Making disciples of Jesus, of your kids. That is your primary responsibility as a follower of Jesus if you're a parent. It's not that they're a high school athlete, a D1 athlete. It's not that they get the, the, the best education or, or so that they have the, can make the most money or have the best job or find the best. That, that's not the priority. Those things are all important and those things are all good and great. Your primary role as a parent is to make disciples of your kids, to bring them up with the instruction that comes from the Lord and to do that in a way where they want to please the Lord, not for you, but so that they want to please the Lord to where God gets a hold of their hearts and where their faith becomes their own. And so to do that, it, it just, it starts with prioritizing their, their spiritual life above everything else. In our culture, in our world, and listen, I, we battle with this as parents on a daily and weekly basis. Are we going to prioritize our kids' spiritual growth and spiritual life above all the things that the culture and school and everything else and sports tries to, to pull on us? This is a daily war. And I'm not saying that we always get it right, but this is a daily and weekly and monthly battle. Are we going to prioritize their spiritual lives above everything else that we've got going on? Because if we're gonna make disciples of our kids, if that's our primary role, then their spiritual life must be the priority in our homes. And we've gotta do this in a way where they want to please the Lord. So how do we do this? And here, here's what I would submit to you. Gospel-centered parenting is not about behavior modification, it's about heart transformation. This is, this is where we've got to get. See, this is the why behind the what. Most of us are going for this in parenting, behavior modification, because we're either embarrassed in the moment or they hurt our feelings or they make us angry or, or whatever the case might be. Most of the time we're going for this. But remember what we said at the beginning, to have, we, we, to, we've got to have spiritual eyes to see the why behind the what. Jesus said it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks and you, everything you do and say comes from here. And so in our parenting, here's what we've got to go for. We've got to see beyond the surface and get to the root, which is the heart. So we're about heart transformation, not necessarily behavior modification. We want kids to obey because they want to please the Lord. They want to please the Lord because their heart loves the Lord. And so we want our kids to love Jesus. And the scripture says, Jesus said, if you love me, then you will obey what I command. And so our role as parents, listen to me, parents, our primary role as parents, as husbands and wives who are fathers and mothers, our primary role is to model this love for Jesus in our own lives and cultivate this love of Jesus in our kids' lives. And this takes seeing beyond the surface. We're not just correcting behavior to get to right and to wrong, we're getting to the heart. Why did you do that? 
Why do we not do this? You see, gospel-centered parenting gets to the why. If we're going for heart transformation, we've got to get to the why. And so this is why we go to church. And this is why we prioritize our spiritual lives over everything else in our life. This is why we treat our friends this way and we don't treat our friends that way. This is why we respect our parents and teachers and coaches. This is why we, we don't talk like that to parents and teachers and coaches. We've got to get to the why and address the heart issue that's going on. This is why we pursue purity in our dating relationships. This is why we don't do this when it comes to dating relations. It's not just that we don't do this and we do this. Listen, the danger in my home and for my kids is that they will do things or not do things or feel pressure to do things or not do things because they're my kids, because they're, pa- they're pastor kids. In fact, uh, we've had long conversations about this. I- I've had people tell my kids at school that they've had friends that have told them, Hey, we didn't think you would do that or talk like that because you're the son of a pastor. And I tell my son all the time, that's not why we do or don't do things because of, uh, because, because of my job. We, we do this or we don't do this because we love Jesus. Because we follow Jesus and Levi, Coben, Nixon, you've said you want to follow Jesus. And so as Christ followers, this is what we do in order to honor and to please him. Not because it's just right in and of itself or wrong or because you're in my family or because of my job. See, we've got to get to the why. This is why we don't listen to that or or don't watch that. This is why we pursue our God-assigned gender. This is why we do marriage God's way. This is why, because we love following. We're doing this for Jesus, because we love Jesus, because we follow Jesus, because we worship Jesus. And if you're a parent of a student here in sixth through 12th grade, I just want to draw your attention. You're going to hear more about it soon, but to our, our gender and sexuality night that we're going to do with parents and kids here in about a, a few weeks. You can sign up for that night on our app. We're going to do that on a Sunday night. We're going to worship. You're going to hear from me and from Josh. We're going to give you some discussion questions, and we're going to talk to our students with you as parents about gender and sexuality and God's best for that. So you can sign up for that on our app. I strongly encourage you to do that if you've got teenagers, but, but this is why we do and don't do because we want to please the Lord. And if your kids are going to want to please the Lord, then they've got to know the Lord. They've got to know Jesus, which means they're, they're hearing it from you. You're, you're modeling it. The primary disciple makers of your kids is you parents. It's not us. It's you. We're here to come alongside you and help you in that. And we're going to do that even more so this coming semester as we provide a table talk for you to walk your kids through everything we talked about on Sunday and pray with your kids and give you some ideas and games to do with your kids that will reinforce everything that we talk about on Sundays. That's launching mid-August. But we're here to come alongside you and help you disciple your kids because that is your primary role as parents. Gospel-centered parenting gets to what's going on in the heart. And as we see what's going on in our hearts, it reveals our need for Jesus. Because only Jesus can change your heart's parents. And only Jesus can change your kid's heart. They need a heart change. And even as followers of Jesus, when we sin or when we turn away from God, we, we need a, a heart change. It's not just stop doing this and start doing this. It's not one, two, three, Jesus said. It's follow me. Follow me. And so we point our kids. And when in this moment, maybe as parents, we're feeling a little guilt or maybe a little bit of shame because we haven't done this perfectly. Neither have I. I fall way short of this often. It isn't start doing this and learn to do this and stop doing this. No, parents, it's follow Jesus. And as you follow Jesus and model this love for Jesus, your kids will see it and it will be replicated and multiplied into their lives. As you cultivate that, you model it and you cultivate this love of Jesus and this need for Jesus to change my heart, to change me from the inside 
out to do what I can't do in my own life, to do what my kids can't do for themselves. And so I've got to point them to Jesus. Hey, not just, hey, you gotta stop doing this and you gotta not do this and you gotta start doing, no, Levi, Coben, Nick's, you've got to follow Jesus. And so you need to pray right now and ask God to reveal what's going on in your heart that led to this and ask God to change your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and then give you the strength to turn from that sin and to walk in holiness. You see, that's getting to the why behind the what. That's the heart transformation. That's our mission as parents, not behavior modification. And so here's some just baby steps that I invite you to do this week. Number one, look at your schedule and see what you need to do to prioritize your kid's spiritual life over everything else they've got going on. Secondly, ask your kids what they learned in their class today and discuss it with them. We'll post the big idea usually that they learned in their class on social media, but ask them what they learned in their class and talk about it with them, maybe over lunch today. Very soon, like I said, starting this fall, all of our kids, youth and adults, what we talk about here, we will all be discussing the exact same passage with the exact same big ideas. And so you'll know exactly what they talked about in your class because we will have talked about it in here to create that common conversation and discussion around that table talk. So so ask your kids what they learned today and talk about it with them. And then this week, I challenge you, dads, moms, get your family together just just once this week, at least once this week, and pray together that you would love, follow, and worship Jesus with all of your hearts. All right, secondly, for today, number four, fourth on our flourishing family, we've got gospel-centered mission. A family, a flourishing family, a gospel-centered family has a gospel-centered wife, a gospel-centered husband, gospel-centered parenting, and gospel-centered mission. Your family has a mission that starts in the home, but then it goes beyond that into the culture. And so now let's look here at Colossians chapter three, starting in verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done for God has no favorites. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves and remember that you also have a master in heaven. Now, I know you might be thinking to yourself at this moment, this seems like kind of a totally different issue and you would be right on the surface. And so we're gonna come back to the why And right after, and why these verses come after verses about parenting, we're we're, going to get there. We're going to get to the why, but we've got to deal with some surface level things first, because if you're like me and you're reading this, you're thinking, wait a second, why doesn't the Bible seem like it's, why does it seem like it's not denouncing slavery here? Like, why isn't Paul saying like, stop slavery. And why is this coming right after verses about parenting? So, so what's going on here? Who is this for? And how do we apply this to today? I think there's some surface level ways to apply these verses as a family, but, but then there's some deeper issues here that, that, that we've got to talk about. All right. Because you might be thinking, how does this at all relate to the mission of a family? We're going to get to that, but we've got to deal with some things first. Number one, th- these verses and other verses like it, on, on the surface and to the skeptic, will, will give reason for people to doubt the scripture or to turn away from it because they'll say, well, what's going on here? Paul seems to condone slavery as he just tells slaves to obey their masters. So, so, so what's going on here? Well, let, let's talk about this here for just a little bit. First of all, let's talk about what this slavery that Paul's talking about wasn't. 
Okay, a lot of times when we talk about slavery, especially in the ancient East or in the first century, we kind of overlay our American or Western understanding of new world slavery kind of over this. And that's always a bad idea, no matter what you're doing. It's always a bad idea to kind of overlay your context and our language and our definitions and kind of just read that into the scripture. That's called eisegesis. When you take your world and your context and your life and you read it into the scripture, the, the way we study the scripture is called exegesis, which means we study the scripture. We start with the scripture first, the context of scripture, which is why we've begun to study books of the Bible verse by verse, because it's so easy to just take one verse and pull it out of context. That, that's why I've been challenging you guys to, to, for the most part, just stop. I know it's going to sound weird. Stop reading Christian books. Stop doing the daily devotionals. You need to read the scripture. And I know that's, that sounds weird and please, I'm not, I'm not saying those things are bad or wrong. I'm just saying we need to study the scripture in context. And when you take a devotional that just takes one verse out of context, it hasn't studied the ones after it or the ones before it, and it gives you the Devo and all that. It's just, listen, it's not, I hope you hear my heart here. I'm not trying to say those things are wrong. I'm just saying it's not the best. They're not the best and they can lead you astray. And so I invite you to study the scripture here. So, um, so, so when we start with the scripture and we pull out of it, it's truth. And we study the context of the culture of the day. Okay. That's called exegesis. And then we look at, okay, now I understand what it's saying. I've interpreted it rightly. Now, how does that apply to my life? Okay. So, so that's, that's correct biblical interpretation. So that's what we've got to do. So, so what is this, what was this slavery? Not what, what, what is it not? Okay. First of all, this is not new world slavery, not as we understand it. That, that's not what's going on here for the, the, the most part, okay? Ethnicity in the ancient East or in the first century under the Roman Empire, slavery, uh, ethnicity was not an issue. Uh, people of all colors had slaves of all colors. And slaves of all colors and ethnicities had their own slaves of all colors and ethnicities. So this is not uh, one race enslaving another race. That, that is evil. So, so, but that's not, that's not what's happening here. In most cases, in most cases, this wasn't a capturing of someone and making them a slave like new world slavery, or colonial slavery was doing, capturing people in Africa and bringing them over to the new world to force them into slavery. Most of the time, that's not what was happening here. This is a totally different culture, a totally different context. So, so let's talk about some of what this was. What, what is this slavery that Paul is referring here? Well, in most cases, slave is maybe not the best word. The best word, the best translation of the Greek word that Paul uses here is a bond servant. And that's, that's a very different ballgame. So, so let's talk about this. First century bond servants or ancient Near East bond servants. Okay, let's talk about this here for just a second. First of all, a bond servant was a contracted way to pay off a debt. And so someone might enter into slavery or become a bond servant with a rich master in order to pay off their debt to that person or maybe to another person. They would enter into this contract and work for this person in order to make money to pay off a debt. It was a great option if you were bankrupt or if you were in poverty, if you got sick, if your family experienced some sort of crisis, becoming a bond servant was a way to get out. There, there was no government assistance during this day and during this time. And so becoming a bond servant was a way to get out of poverty and to provide for your family. In the first century Roman empire, bond servants were expected to be educated and oftentimes would become even more educated than their own masters. Bond servants could own their own property, would receive profits from their labor and from their own property. They would oftentimes learn a trade. They were freed at age 30. So regardless of where the debt was at, if you've entered into this contract, you were going to be freed at age 30 and in the Roman empire would then become a Roman citizen. So becoming a bond servant was a great way. It was a path to Roman citizenship where you would then receive the rights as a Roman citizen. 
And so it was actually desirable to enter into. And you could have a socioeconomic status above a free person. In fact, the day laborer who woke up going to their job, trying to put food on their table, the day laborer was the bottom rung of the socioeconomic status in the first century Roman empire. And there was even some Roman government officials that started off as bond servants or slaves. And in the ancient Near East, here are two great examples. Joseph was sold into slavery, was educated, was trained, became second in command at a very rich, powerful man's house then went to prison, then a still as a, in status of a slave or as a bond servant rose to second in command in Egypt right under Pharaoh. Daniel is another great example. Taken as a slave, as a captive of war, but even as a slave educated and trained and became and rose to second in power under Nebuchadnezzar. This was all the things that were possible as a bond servant in the ancient Near East or in first, second century Roman empire. There were still some problems with it though. Because some masters were very harsh, they were very brutal. Some were considered property and so they could be sold to someone else. And the Bible clearly denounces this. So now let's talk about what the Bible says. First of all, let's talk about Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God gave Israel what was called the year of Jubilee, which meant every seven years, all bond servants, your contracted workers that were working for you to pay off a debt, they were all to be released and freed every seven years. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, it says upon setting a bond servant or a slave free, you had to give them assistance to set up their life as a free person. God used, actually used Israel as an agent of his wrath to wipe out people groups because of their evil like slave trade and sex trafficking. And freedom was granted in Israel to any slave or to any bond servant that was beaten and then assistance was given. You would have to assist them and set them up financially in their new life. And so God says, you, you might have these workers that work for you that are contracted to work for you, but if you are harsh with them, if you beat them, if you physically abuse them, they are immediately set free and you now have to pay for their new life, their new job, their new home. You have to get them set up in their new life so that they don't fall on their face. Israel became a safety zone for runaway slaves from other countries, from other people groups. If you made it to Israel, there was no extradition. And so you were free. You weren't a slave in Israel and you weren't sent back, creating already this redemptive theme that if you make it to Israel, if you make it to my people, if you make it to the people of God, you are free. You're free. In the New Testament, when Jesus told a story about a man who owed his master a great debt, who was forgiven of his debt, and then didn't forgive the smaller debt that was forgiven to him, the context of that story is a bond servant. And Jesus is saying this master who was owed this great debt by his bond servant was set free so that he no longer had to pay this debt. Just communicating here again, the heart of God for no one to be in slavery or even in debt. This is God's heart. And Galatians chapter three, Paul says this, there is no longer slave or free. And Colossians chapter three says, in Christ, we slave and free. We are one, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. First Timothy one, chapter, chapter one, verse 10, Paul says this, that slave trading or the forced enslavement of people is wicked, evil, and sinful. The Bible condemns repeatedly kidnapping and forcing people into slavery explicitly and repeatedly. When Paul wrote to Philemon, he said that Onesimus, his former slave, his former bondservant, as Paul as Onesimus had fleed from Philemon, Paul is now sending him back to Philemon and saying, he's coming, I'm sending him back to you, he's coming back to you, no longer a slave, but as a brother. We're, all, we're, in, we're in Christ, Philemon. There is no slave in free, we, we, we are one in Christ. He is our 
brother. And so while the people of God, the, the, the church in this day, in this time, in this culture, couldn't change the culture and could not change the government because they had no influence among Christians, the church said, we are brothers. There is no slave and free. We are all one in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter seven, Paul says this, don't get into slavery. In other words, again, here showing the, the willingness of some to enter into a bond servant contract. Paul says, don't, don't do that. Number one, number one, don't do it. Don't get into the situation. And if you're in it, get out as soon as you can, because this is not God's plan. Get out. You are free in Christ. And so Paul and the church here would address this slave and, and bond servant relationship to their master and give the slaves, the bond servants instruction. He would preach their equal status and worth among the other brothers and sisters in Christ. And he would tell them this, you have a responsibility to represent Christ and to be a witness for Christ, even in that relationship to your master. Now, let me ask you this, as you've heard some of this, what was Paul's other option? What, what was the church's other option? You might say, well, they could have said that this whole system should be wiped out and should be done away with. Now, well, let me just ask you to consider a, a few things here. Again, to be culturally and contextually sensitive here, let me just ask you to consider a few things. Number one, if you were to wipe out this, if you were to say, if Paul was to say, hey, listen, we got to get rid of this whole system. He's speaking truth to power and saying, we got to get rid of this whole system. It's not fair. It's not just. People are abusing it. It's not God's heart. It's not God's plan. Let's just say Paul did that. There would have been nothing to replace this current system in this day and this time. So you would have had millions upon millions of people literally falling on their face, destitute and poverty, kids on the streets. That's what would have happened because there was no other system. There was no other way to help all of these people. If you were just to do away with this system, I would invite you to consider this today. Many people want to rightfully see prison reform. And, and I, I believe that that is a right and just thing that even as the people of God, we should seek and we should speak into prison reform. But just imagine with me for just a second, centuries from now, we figure out some sort of new system where we don't need prisons anymore. I know some of you are like, there's, there's no way that's impossible. Okay, I get, I get it. But let's just say centuries from now, we, we have figured out a way to do away with prisons. We got a new system. It works even better. We might look back. Those generations might be tempted to look back on us and say, why were you seeking to reform it? They would even look at our, our ways of reforming as oppressive because they had gotten to a place where they didn't need it anymore or they had come up with a new and better system. They might look back on us and judge us. And that's what we do to Paul and to the church oftentimes when we don't give them the benefit of the doubt for the context and the culture that they found themselves in. Now, finally, here's what I would invite you to consider. Christians, the church at this point in time, are small, is a very small group of people that have no cultural power. Many in the church, many in the church at this time were slaves themselves. They were bond servants and they were already being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And so Paul, the church, they're not really wanting to draw more attention on themselves or they don't want to seem like a faith that's, that, that's insurrectionists. And so because of their persecution for believing in their monotheism, for believing that Jesus is Lord, that he rose from the grave, they're already receiving and experiencing great amount of persecution. And so they're not wanting to draw more attention to themselves. And so Paul and the church will write and say to, to, to believers who find themselves in these circumstances, hey, this is more about now glorifying God, representing Jesus, being a witness of Jesus in your circumstances. He's not writing condoning this. 
He's writing to a small band at this point, a very small group of believers and saying, hey, this is the way we are going to honor God even in this unjust system. And this is the way we are going to be witnesses for Christ even in this unjust system. Imagine what Christians today would say to a Christian in North Korea. In an abusive and unjust system in government. We, we probably wouldn't be writing them, telling them all the ways they need to rebel and the way they need to speak truth to power. We would be telling them, man, we are devastated by what you are having to endure. And we would encourage them and we would pray for them to honor God and to be a representative of Jesus, to be an ambassador for Christ, even in their difficult, challenging, abusive circumstances. And so it's actually the Bible, it's the church, it's the preaching of the gospel that has brought about and created the conditions that have resulted, at least in our country, for freedom for all. Some Christians in the first century would sell themselves into slavery, into bond service with a just or moral master in order to buy out the contracts and rescue those with evil masters. Some Christians would adopt kids to keep them from becoming slaves or bond servants themselves. In the new world, owners did not want their slaves to have access to the Bible because they knew it was a word for the oppressed, that it would elevate them, that it would set them free. It has been godly men and women preaching scripture, standing for scripture that has eradicated slavery, ended segregation, and rid the church of our own hypocrisy and heretical doctrine when it comes to our silence. It has been the scripture, it has been the gospel that has done this. So who is this for? How do we apply this in our day and our time? Two ways, number one, I think Paul is writing here to many who chose this, who chose to become bond servants. And so he's saying, you need to fulfill your obligation and the contract that you'd entered into. And, and so in that way, there's some applications here for us as we work, as we work to provide for our families, as we work to pay off our debts. There's some application points here. And, and, and here are a few of those. Number one, employees. You need to know you're serving Jesus as you work. Every day you go to work, you are serving Jesus, Paul says. You're working for Jesus. So you work like Jesus is with you and watching you. You have a godly attitude and integrity as you work and know that your boss's boss is Jesus and you are ultimately working for and serving him. And so if you're an employee, I challenge you this week, to live this out by blessing a coworker, blessing your boss this week, repent of your bad attitude or poor work ethic and go to, this, go, to, go to work this week as if you're serving the Lord and not man. If you're an employer, you need to know that you are leading your company under the Lordship of Jesus. If you're a boss, you need to know you have a boss. And his name is Jesus. And so for you, I think the scripture would challenge you to your employees based on these verses. You need to be an encouragement to your staff members. You need to be paying a fair wage to your employees. And work as if you're serving Jesus and not a bottom line or not a profit margin. You see, I think what Paul would say here is as we go to work, it's really bigger than work. It's bigger than making money. Work is actually a part of your worship. It's a part of your witness. And so as you go to work this week, see the why behind the what. You're going to work this week to make money, to provide for your family. Th those are great things. But the why, the true why, the true mission here with spiritual eyes to see the why behind the what is to glorify Jesus. It's to be a witness of Jesus. Secondly, I'm not sure if I'm being honest to the scripture that work is totally an apples to apples example of what's going on here in Colossians chapter three and Colossians chapter four, verse one. 
I think when you get to the root of what Paul is talking about here, and because of the way this bond servant master relationship fleshed itself out, I think really what Paul is talking about here is as followers of Jesus, if we don't handle abuse well, if we don't handle it differently than the world handles it, then we could harm our witness. And so I think Paul is saying, use your voice, yes, but we don't turn to violence. We aren't insurrectionists. We're going to succeed, I think Paul is telling, even slaves here who find themselves in unjust, abusive circumstances, or as you find yourself suffering maybe in this life, that there's something bigger going on than even your circumstances and even the suffering and the abuse that you've endured. There's something bigger going on here, and we are going to succeed through humility through honoring people, through peace and love, and we will win them over to the gospel with our submissive, kind, tender-hearted spirits. In fact, it's what the scripture says to a husband or to a wife, that you will win over an unbelieving spouse through your kind, tender-hearted, loving, peaceful spirit. That's how you will win over even an unbelieving spouse. And so in the same way, the way you work with a great attitude and with integrity can win over your coworkers and win over your boss. You see, I think Paul's ultimate concern here is our witness to the world, to the culture, to power, and whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And so while there are some meaningful applications here to how we work as employees or as employers, I think, and how we should conduct ourselves, I think the real heart of the matter here is the why behind the what. It's that you and your family have a mission in whatever culture or circumstance you find yourself in. That the mission of your family, dads, moms, husbands, wives, is not making money. It's not status in this life. It's not creating high school athletes or D1 athletes. However, the place that that mission takes place, the context that your mission for your family takes place to be witnesses of Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus is in the culture. It's at school. It's at work. It's on that team. It's at that activity. And so I think that's the why here behind the what, that our families as Christians, we have a mission. We have a greater and higher mission, even in unjust circumstances, harsh and suffering. And it takes spiritual eyes to see past the surface of what's going on and to see the why, to see our mission. The scripture tells us in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a lamb is silent before its shearers, So Jesus was silent as he endured abuse, as he endured unjust treatment. He was silent. He didn't try to defend himself. He didn't try to raise his voice or become an insurrectionist. And with his kind spirit, through his humility, through his losing in the world's eyes, through his laying his life down. Through death itself, he conquered death. And when the world thought he lost, the victory had just begun. Because see, Jesus won by losing. And in death, he rose. And he accomplished salvation for you and me. Jesus died on the cross for your sin and my sin. And three days later, he rose again, conquering sin and death. And if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, I invite you to do so today. He died in your place for your sin so that you might be right with God and forgiven of your sin. And even though you die, just like Jesus died, you will live one day if you commit your life to Jesus. So if you're here, you've never made that decision before, today is your day. There's never been a king like this who laid himself down for you and died in your place. He is worthy of your faith, your life, and your worship. Give your life to Jesus today. And if that's you, jump on our app, fill our connect form, and let us know that you're committing your life to Jesus today. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And yet he was silent. Why? 
Because Jesus knew the why. He knew the why behind the what. And he accomplished his mission. Salvation for the world. Because he had spiritual eyes to see the why behind the what. So here's the big idea today. A flourishing family keeps their vision on the mission. And to keep your vision on the mission, you've got to have spiritual eyes to see right now the why behind the what, the why behind your parenting, the the why behind your work, behind suffering, that your life is for Jesus as a representative of Jesus. And you have a mission to make disciples of all nations. And that starts in your home with your own kids, the flourishing family keeps their vision on the life-changing, culture-changing, world-changing message of Jesus and mission of Jesus. A few weeks ago, Levi had just joined this new baseball team and um, they had their first tournament with this new team. It was in uh, Pecos. And uh, I know if you're like, what's in Pecos? Not much, okay? but. But there's some new, brand new baseball fields there that are the best I've ever seen in this state for little leaguers. So, so we're, we're going to this tournament. We had just left youth camp. We're driving from youth camp to Pecos. And um, we get there, tournament starts the next day. And on that Saturday, it's Friday night, we're eating. We're in line at this Dickie's barbecue. And um, Levi had been struggling. He, he, was, he had been rude. He, he was being rude to his sister, being rude to us. And uh, I knew he was tired from youth camp and I'd just gotten on to him. We're in line at Dickie's, he's got his head down, he's upset. And I'd been getting on to him. I'd been being strong with him. But I went over to him and I put my arm around him. And tried to get to the heart and said, Levi, what's wrong? I can tell something's up. You're being mean to your sister. You're being disrespectful to us. What's going on here? I said, are you tired? You know, what's going on? And um, he looked up at me with huge tears in his eyes. And he said, dad, I am so nervous. And I said, uh, about what? He said, about playing on this new team. And um, if you're like, Clayton, your son's, you know, 14, like, and uh, he's gonna know that you're talking about him. I, I know if I'm ever talking about my kids, you, you can know that I've already asked their permission. And uh, some of you guys know this that have been here for a few years, but a couple years ago, I asked my son, Levi, I said, hey, Levi, um, you know, every once in a while I talk about myself, I talk about our family, I talk about what's going on. And he said, yeah, dad, it's okay. And I said, no, you don't even know what I'm about to ask yet. He said, no, dad, it's, it's okay. And uh, I said, well, I don't, I don't know if you know what I'm about to ask you, so, so I wanna be clear. And I said, sometimes I'm, I'm talking about you or, what's going on in our family. And I'm not gonna do that anymore unless you're okay with it. And uh, he said, no dad. He said, if it helps anybody, he said, I'm good with it. And I said, well, oftentimes I'm, I'm talking about my own failures. I said, so I, I don't want you to think I'm gonna do something about you or Coben or Nixon or your mom or anything that I'm not doing about myself, but, but we are in a place where we can't just talk about things. We, we've gotta talk about how they influence us and impact us. He said, dad, yeah, dad, I, I get it and, and you're fine. And I said, well, I'll ask you. He said, you don't, even, you don't ever have to ask me. He said, it's good, it doesn't matter what it is. I couldn't, I couldn't believe he had that kind of vision at, 11, 12 years old whenever I asked him, but, but I still do. I, I still ask him every, every time. And so I asked Levi, I said, hey, can I share this story? And I said, I'm talking about this. I think it really applies. He said, yeah, absolutely. I asked him again, yes. I said, here's what I'm gonna say. He said, yeah, I get it. You can do it, that's fine. So he looks up at me and he says, I'm so nervous. Tears in his eyes. Levi gets very anxious with new things. He had been very comfortable on his old team, very relaxed. He was fine, this is a new team. 
knows a lot of the kids, but still makes him a little bit nervous. Anything new, any, any new situation, it makes him nervous and he just gets anxious. And it takes a little bit for him to calm down and, and, and relax. And so he was terrified. He's a great baseball player. He knows what he's doing, but he was terrified because it was just brand new. And so I, I had my arm around him and I just said, Levi, listen, first of all, you, you know how to play. You're gonna do fine. But, but ultimately, Levi, this is bigger than baseball. I said, so the, the pressure's off. I said, you, you may put your pressure on yourself for, for performance and things like that. I said, but, but I, I don't want you to ever hear that from me. And if, I've ever, if you've ever felt that from me, I, I'm, I'm sorry. The only reason why I want you to do good or to excel or to try hard or to do your best is number one, is because you're doing it for the Lord. This is bigger than baseball. And number two, sometimes you're going to struggle and you're not going to do well. And you're gonna hit as a baseball, but you're gonna have slumps and it's gonna be tough and it's gonna be difficult. but it's bigger than baseball. It's about our hearts, it's about our attitudes, it's about our witness for Jesus. And many of the people, I'm just being real with you right now, um, a lot of the people that are on his baseball team now, some of which were on his old one, are now coming to our church. Levi invited a lot of them. They started coming to our youth group. There's some of you are here now. You, you started coming and because some of that was because of, because of Levi. And I just was reminding him of that saying, hey, Levi, this is bigger than baseball. It's about our witness for Jesus. It's about our heart for Jesus. It's about doing everything that we do for Jesus. It's bigger than baseball. We go to sleep, we wake up the next morning, we get in our car. And um, on the way to the first game, my wife, Darby knew all this. She just started praying in the car, just out loud. And so we were all praying on the way to the game that we would honor the Lord, that Levi would do well. She prayed, I prayed and just said, Lord, we're, we're here for you. This isn't about baseball. This is for you. Verse 23, in all things, we do, we do it for the Lord. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you said to your disciples, you will be my witnesses. And we know that that starts in our homes as parents. We, we are to be witnesses of Jesus to our kids. And then as a family, we have a mission and that is to make disciples of all nations. And so God, I just pray right now in this moment, you would remind every last one of us of our mission, the why behind the what. And then in all the things that we do, we would do it for the Lord. In Jesus name. Amen.